Good morning, everyone. Today we read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slap you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The word of the Lord. Have you ever thought about how much bloodshed, war, violence, relational breakdown, and social hostility have resulted over the centuries from three little words? What words, you might ask? They dissed me. Or if not those exact words, then something along those lines. For instance, Lin-Manuel Miranda is a Broadway artist who took the life of Alexander Hamilton and transformed it into a smash hit hip-hop musical. You may probably know that Alexander Hamilton was killed in a duel with Aaron Burr. But why would two men show up in Weehawken, New Jersey at the break of dawn with loaded pistols Ready to kill each other? Well, here's how Aaron Burr puts it in a letter to Alexander Hamilton in one of the songs from the show. He says, Dear Alexander, I am slow to anger, but I toe the line as I reckon with the effects of your life on mine. I look back on where I failed, and in every place I checked, the only common thread has been your disrespect. Why did Aaron Burr kill Alexander Hamilton? He dissed me. What do you do when, um, when you suffer personal injury or insult at the hands of someone else? This is a tough question because, as we just noticed, uh, on the one hand, there's been so much bloodshed and violence that results from personal grievances. And yet, on the other hand, there's a very real principle of justice at stake here. If we don't stand up to evil, then oppressors take over the world. Which means we have a real problem with what Jesus says in this passage that we just read. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going through all of the weightiest areas of our life. Anger, violence, sex, marriage, integrity, society. And he's basically overturning everything we think we know. In fact, um, with each section, uh, what Jesus says, his approach is more and more unrealistic to our ears. So that by the time we get to this passage where Jesus is talking about retaliation and revenge, uh, we want to say, Jesus, this sounds very lofty and idealistic, but you are not in touch with reality. This is not a picture of the good life. This is a picture of a crazy person. So here's the question. Do we think Jesus is competent? Do we think it's possible that Jesus might know more than we do about uh, what's best for people? You know, this, there's a big risk here. There's a lot at stake here, especially when we're talking about suffering personal injury to our own personal well-being. But what if 
the way of Jesus really is the way of true human flourishing. If we're willing to suspend our skepticism for just a few minutes, then Jesus has a lot to say to us about how we respond to personal injury. Let's take a look at this passage. Jesus shows us three things. He shows us there's a baseline of justice. There's a surprising invitation. And lastly, Jesus shows us what we need to accept. There's a baseline of justice, a surprising invitation, and lastly, what we need to accept. So first, Jesus shows us a baseline of justice. One of the first things we need to understand is that Jesus is not getting rid of the principle of justice. He says, do not resist an evil person. In other words, Jesus is not saying do not resist evil in general or do not resist an evil government. This is not so much talking about social structures as it's talking about interpersonal relationships. Now, that doesn't mean that what Jesus says here has nothing to do with social or political action. It does. And if you want to know more about that, then come back next week. It's just not the primary focus here. The primary focus here is interpersonal relationships. And we can see that in a couple of ways. First, all of the examples Jesus uses about the cheek and the coat and the extra mile, those are interpersonal. Uh, But secondly, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament when he says, you've heard it said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Um, All of those are places in the Old Testament that are talking about interpersonal relationships. In fact, Jesus could be quoting from several places in the Old Testament, um, Exodus 21 or Leviticus 24 or Deuteronomy 19. Every single one of those passages uses the same language of eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And every single one of those places is talking about personal injury that's the result uh, or that happens within the context of interpersonal relationships. So that's the context here, but there's one more really big component we need to understand. In all of these Old Testament examples, the scene is a law court where there's supposed to be a judge who's rendering justice impartially. The the intention is to preserve justice as a way of keeping revenge from spiraling out of control. To keep people from saying, oh, you took out my eye? Well, I'm going to take out your family. The intention of this law was to preserve justice in order to keep revenge from spiraling out of control. So one of the first and most important things we need to understand about what Jesus is saying here is that he is not getting rid of the principle of justice. In fact, everything Jesus is about to say about not resisting evil only makes sense if evil is real and justice is good. Jesus is not getting rid of justice. He's going to do something very different with justice, but he's not getting rid of it. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Justice is a huge topic in our culture. Our society focuses more on justice and equality and individual human rights than possibly any other society ever before us. We take pride in how progressive and enlightened we are. But do you know where so many of our progressive and enlightened moral values come from? They come from the Bible. In fact, many of them come from the Old Testament. For instance, individual human rights is the idea that every human being should be treated equally because every human being has inherent worth, value, and dignity. In other words, we say that it's wrong to show favoritism to people because they're rich or powerful, that everybody should should receive the same justice regardless of social status. 
So did you know that in the ancient world, there were many societies that had very strict codes of justice. They cared about justice. But in every single one of those societies, they had different levels of justice depending on whether you were rich or poor or whether you were an ethnic insider or an ethnic interloper. It wasn't equal. The Jews were unique in the ancient world because so many of their laws were the same for everyone, regardless of whether you were rich or poor, male or female, Jewish or some other ethnic group. Everyone was equal. That was unique in the ancient world. That means that thousands of years ago, long before Black Lives Matter or Me Too, the Bible was already saying everyone should be treated equally, regardless of social status, regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity, because every human being is equal. That was unique in the ancient world. Now, I understand um, that, and we need to understand that um, the way they practiced justice back then obviously isn't as progressive as what we would expect today, but the roots of all our deepest moral values for things like equality and individual human rights, those roots come from the Bible. So if you're exploring faith and spirituality, or maybe you're skeptical about Christianity, I understand that sounds like an outlandish statement, but don't take my word for it. There are many historians and philosophers who point out the same thing. One of my personal favorites is uh, our dear friend, Frederick Nietzsche. Frederick Nietzsche was one of the most influential philosophers who ever lived. He was also a very um, competent historian. Frederick Nietzsche was constantly pointing out in many of his books how ancient moral systems were all based on things like strength, dominance, ruthlessness, and the preservation of authoritarian power structures. It's kind of like a Cobra Kai ethic. No mercy. Do you have a problem with that, Mr. Lawrence? No sensei. Uh, Nietzsche, however, said that um, in contrast to that, the biblical moral system, uh, the Bible introduced a completely different moral system that was based on things like equality, mercy, caring for the poor, and correcting power imbalances in society. So all of the things, all of the moral values that we care about so much in our society, things like equality and human rights, Nietzsche said those things come to us from the Bible. Friends, here's the point. Jesus is beginning with a baseline assumption that every human being is equal and that we all have a rightful claim on others to be treated with justice. Everything else he says about um, retaliation and revenge in this passage depends on this baseline of justice. That's the first thing we see. But secondly, Jesus also shows us a surprising invitation. Because the question is that Jesus is really addressing here is, what do you do when you're treated with injustice? You have a rightful claim to justice. What do you do with that rightful claim? Well, Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. Now, obviously, um, pretty much everything depends on what Jesus means by this word, resist. Let me give you a very helpful paraphrase of what Jesus is talking about here. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul is, is riffing on, um, on Jesus, and he says this, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Dear ones, this is an excellent summary 
of what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, look, if somebody insults you or injures you or demeans you, don't retaliate. Don't take revenge. Instead, surprise them with grace. Surprise them with grace. In doing so, Paul says, you heap burning coals on their head. Now, that's not talking about punishment. Burning coals is a metaphor for repentance. When we respond graciously to injustice and ill treatment, Paul is saying that's a way of helping people to see just how evil they really are through a transformational experience of grace. And by the way, if you think about it, do you see how empowering this is? You know, you can't change people or the way they act. You do know that, know that right? You can't change other people or how they act. The only thing you can change is how you act. But when you change the way you act, guess what? You change the dynamics of the relationship. You change the atmosphere of the relationship. You're introducing something totally unexpected and completely surprising because, friends, grace always catches people completely off guard. And you see that in all of the examples that Jesus uses here. So first, when he talks about slapping someone on the cheek, um, that's not talking so much about physical injury as it's talking about um, personal insult. In that culture, to slap someone with the back of your hand was twice as much an insult as striking them with the palm of your hand. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, if that happens to you, surprise them with grace. Turn the other cheek. Or secondly, when he talks about somebody suing you for your shirt, that's talking about being wrongfully sued by another person. The image here that Jesus uses is of a law court. And he's saying, imagine that you're standing in court, somebody's suing you for your shirt. Imagine that not only do you give them your shirt, but you take off your coat as well, and you stand naked in front of the whole courtroom in order to give that person that's suing you whatever it is they may need. It's shocking. It's surprising. That's the point. Or thirdly, um, in that world, in the ancient world, um, in the Roman Empire at that time, a Roman soldier could force, legally force, a Jewish person to carry a burden for them up to one mile. That would have been a bitter reminder to any Jewish person of the unjust, brutal Roman occupation that they had to endure at that time. Jesus is saying, don't just do what people can force you to do. Surprise them with grace. Go another mile. Or lastly, uh, again, in the ancient world, um, if a family member or a neighbor asked you for a loan or asked you for money, because of that collectivist society, that person had a claim on you. Jesus is saying, give even to a stranger. Give even to somebody who doesn't have a claim on you. Surprise them with grace. Friends, do you see the common thread in all of these examples? Jesus is saying, when, when somebody insults you or injures you, don't do the expected thing. Don't stand up for your rights. Instead, surprise them with grace and invite them into a whole different way of living in the kingdom of God. I read a great story this week about a young art student named Jared. Jared got off the train one day, and as he was walking over the overpass bridge, a big guy in a tracksuit ran up to him yelling, Give me your money! while simultaneously reaching threateningly into his pocket for what Jared could only assume was some kind of weapon. Jared was terrified like you or I would be, but while he was on the train, he had been reading the works of Martin Luther King Jr. 
and thinking about the nonviolent resistance of the early Christians. In fact, uh, when that big guy ran up to him and asked for money, um, the words of Jesus, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, those words were running through Jared's head. So Jared reached into his pocket, pulled out his wallet, and gave the guy all of his money, but he also stuck out his hand and said, hi, I'm Jared. (laughs) And the big guy in the tracksuit was completely caught off guard. He didn't know what to do, so he just grabbed hold of Jared's hand and said, "Uh, I'm James. He was completely surprised, but as he reached out his arm, Jared could see the track marks on the guy's arms. And as they got to talking, James was telling Jared about how he had been doing really well trying to stay off drugs, but then his mom kicked him out of the house, and now he was back on the streets. So Jared invited him to his place. He said, hey, why don't you come over, have a shower, have a meal. But while they were talking, a young woman ran by them, um, yelling at James, saying, hey, come on, hurry up. We got to go. They were partners in crime. And, but before James could um, take off, Jared reached into his backpack. He grabbed a little copy of the New Testament he carried around with him, and he put it in James's hand and said, here, my name and number is in this. Call me if you ever need a place to stay. Now, this time, James was surprised again, but this time he was furious. He was angry. He got right up in Jared's face, and he yelled at him. He said, what do I need a Bible for? I'm going to hell. Jared simply said, James, we're all going to hell. That's why Jesus came. And at that moment, big, scary, angry James just broke down sobbing, just heaving and weeping with sobbing. And he took the Bible and ran away, but not without looking back once more at Jared, waving the Bible at him and saying goodbye. And as James and the woman jumped into a getaway car that was waiting there for them, Jared could hear the woman say, I got a bag! But he heard James say, I got a Bible. Friends, Jesus is saying that when you are confronted with evil, when you are attacked, insulted, and injured, rather than retaliating, rather than taking revenge, surprise them with grace. Introduce people to a new way of living in the kingdom of God. Now, please understand, these are not ironclad rules. Jesus is not saying, allow yourself to be abused. And he's not saying, allow other people to be abused. In fact, if you're in an abusive situation or relationship, maybe the the most important thing you need to do is get out and get help. That might actually be the most surprising thing you could do. But these are not legalistic rules. What these are are creative illustrations meant to spark our imagination about what it looks like to live a different way of life in the kingdom of God. So what would it look like for you in your own interpersonal relationships when people attack you or insult you or demean you Instead of retaliating, instead of taking revenge, what it would look like for you to surprise them with grace. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. And that leads to our last point. We've seen a baseline of justice. We've seen a surprising invitation. But lastly, Jesus shows us, he gives us what we need to accept that invitation. Because the question is not just, how are we going to surprise people with grace? The real question is, What do we need in order to do this? Or really, rather, why don't we do this? The answer we don't do it is because we say, well, if I don't demand my rights, if I don't demand justice for myself, then I'm going to be deprived of the dignity that I deserve. 
And the reason we say that is because our sense of self, our sense of personal identity in this world, it's always in question. It's never totally secure, especially in our modern society. You know, we have a lot of sayings in our culture. One of the most popular is this. We say, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you. The only thing that matters is what you think. Boy, that sounds great, but it's impossible. Friend, Charles Taylor is um, a Canadian philosopher who is one of the world's most widely recognized experts on what we call identity politics. He wrote a very influential essay some years ago called The Politics of Recognition. It's all about modern identity formation. Here's what he says at one point in the essay. He says, our identity is partly shaped by recognition or its absence and so a person can suffer real damage if the people or society around them mirror back to them a demeaning or contemptible picture of themselves. Non-recognition or misrecognition can inflict harm, can be a form of oppression, imprisoning someone in a false, distorted, and reduced mode of being. Now, that's very academic language, but Charles Taylor is saying that identity politics, which is one of the most powerful social movements in our world, it's, it's based on the reality that no matter how much our culture says it doesn't matter what people think, it does matter. We long for affirmation. We long for validation. We can't give it to ourselves. It always has to come from outside of ourselves. So, for instance, have you ever noticed how many songs in our culture are all about proclaiming your identity to the world around you? Songs like Let It Go from Frozen or This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. Those songs are all about asserting your identity to a world that has tragically oppressed you. But have you ever noticed what kind of songs are these? They are not quiet, introspective ballads where the singer is inwardly affirming themselves. No, they're protest songs. They're saying recognition has been denied. Recognition has been withheld. And I demand that you give me the, the dignity and the recognition that I deserve. These songs are a demand for a dignity that is being withheld and denied by others. So when your dignity is overwhelmed, when your dignity is denied, what do you do? How do you respond? Friends, you can never give yourselves the identity and the affirmation that your soul most deeply needs. It means that regardless of what our culture says about it, that always has to come from outside of yourselves. We can never give that to ourselves. So when you are attacked or insulted or injured or um, abused or, or suffer some form of oppression, when, when your very sense of self comes under attack, it's no wonder that we respond the way we do. How in the world are we going to not retaliate but instead surprise people with grace? The only way is if you have a sense of self, a sense of personal identity that is so strong so solid and so secure that no attack, no injury, no insult, no abuse, no form of oppression, nothing can call it into question. Where are you going to get that? Because others can't give it to you. You can't even give it to yourself. The only way you can get it is from Jesus. And who is Jesus? You know, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most amazing things, it's easy to miss, is that with each passage, each week, we've been seeing that Jesus quotes Scripture. You have heard it said. He's quoting God. But then he says, but I say to you. 
Essentially, Jesus is saying, my words, my voice, have the same weight and authority as God because I am God. And yet, what did this God do? When Jesus was on trial for his life, he offered his cheek to those who struck him. Matthew 26. Instead of not just giving his shirt and his coat, Jesus was actually stripped naked when they nailed him to the cross. Matthew 27. Jesus didn't just give his money. He gave his life for you and for me. Because friends, whenever we try to build our identity and get the affirmation and validation we need in something other than God, we're actually betraying and abandoning God. God is standing there wanting, willing to to give us all of the affirmation and validation that we so deeply desire. It can only come from him. But when we seek it in something other than God, that's actually a betrayal and an abandonment of God. That means that that God is the one who has the rightful claim of justice, but his claim of justice is actually on us. But on the cross, Jesus got the justice we deserve so that we could get the identity and the affirmation that he deserves. That means that, that it doesn't matter what other people think. It means that it doesn't even matter what you think. The only thing that matters is what God thinks of you and friends. The cross is the final word. It means that you are so loved, so valued, so validated that the God of the universe would give his life for you on the cross. You know what that means, that, what that does for you? Here's what all of this means. It means that when you are attacked, you don't demand a dignity that's being denied by others. You display the dignity that's already been given you by Jesus. So for instance, when Martin Luther King wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, at one point he's talking about how for years the threat of imprisonment in jail was not just an assault on justice for African Americans, it was an assault on their dignity. But, Martin Luther King says, when nonviolent resistance entered the scene, he says, white men gasped at a new phenomenon. What was it? African Americans, not just willing to go to jail, but wanting to go to jail. Why? Here's how Martin Luther King puts it in the letter. He says, when for decades you have been able to make a man compromise his manhood by threatening him with a cruel and unjust punishment, and when suddenly he turns upon you and says, punish me, I do not deserve it, but because I do not deserve it, I will accept it, so that the world will know that I am right and you are wrong, you hardly know what to do. You feel defeated and secretly ashamed. He's talking about white people looking at African Americans doing this. He says, you know that this man is as good a man as you are, that from some mysterious source, he has found the courage and the conviction to meet physical force with soul force. So it was that to the Negro, going to jail was no longer a disgrace, but a badge of honor. He was somebody. He had a sense of somebodiness. Dear ones, when you receive the somebodiness that Jesus is offering you on the cross, that's the only way that you will ever be able to um, surprise people who attack you and insult you with grace. You're no longer demanding a dignity that's being denied you by others. You're displaying a dignity that's already been given you by Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for granting to us to be created in the image of God. Thank you for granting to us
a, a worth and a value and a dignity that are ours simply by virtue of the fact that we have been created to you. And yet, Father, we confess to you that we attempt to build our dignity and honor on something other than you, on all kinds of things other than you. Father, if anyone has the rightful claim to justice, you're the one who has the claim to justice on us. And yet you gave your life on the cross through Jesus. Thank you for that, Father. We pray this morning that you would help us to embrace the worth and the value and the dignity that you have given us through Jesus on the cross. And that we would be able to surprise people with grace when they attack us, when they insult us, when they injure us. Father, help us to surprise them with grace and to invite them into a whole new way of living in the kingdom of God. That many others may also come to know this love and this worth and this dignity that is only available through Jesus. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.